Welcome to Coffee and Geography, where my guests and I geek out about the world and everything on it, discovering that we are all geographers in some way, shape or form. I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button and enjoy the listen. Hello everybody, welcome to Coffee and Geography. And uh, if you're wondering why it's sounding a little bit echoey, it's because I am currently located in quite a nice office actually. Um, an, okay, 1950s concrete office, but it's got a lovely beautiful window. Um, I've got um, someone here in front of me with three monitor screens, because uh, I'm sat in um, one of the PhD offices at the School of Environmental Sciences here at University of Sangley, because I'm with my friend and my colleague, Connor Rutland. Hi, Connor. Hi, Kit. So thanks for inviting me into your uh, humble abode. I mean, <laughs> how, 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 much, how much time do you spend here out of the average week? Is it more time than you'd want? Or? I'm here pretty much, yeah, all day, every day. Um, yeah, nine to five, pretty much. Occasionally work from home, but most of the time I'm here. <laughs> yeah, and uh, at the moment it's just yourself. But uh, I'm just looking around this office, folks, and we've got origami, origami, origami everywhere. I tell you what, that's what we're going to talk about a bit later when I, when I asked you about like your hidden talent. We'll talk about your origami skills a bit later. Uh, but to introduce Connor, everybody. So Connor is a PhD student at the University of Stanglia, uh, researching seismic hazards in the Tibetan Plateau. He has a background in teaching physics and spends time... Um, and also spent time working as an outreach officer raising aspirations of underrepresented uh, young people towards higher and further education. And that's how we met because for a quite a while we were we were work colleagues. Certainly were. So uh, you did uh, my day job. We uh, we worked together in that. Um, but you've made the transition to being a PhD student. <laughs> so so you went from teaching to the outreach job, mm-hmm. kind of similar to me with uh, with a gap in the middle, as you know, with me. But then you decided that this PhD came up. Um, and you thought, I'm going to go for it. Mm. Yeah, so we'll talk about that in a minute. But first of all, let's talk about you being here in Norwich. Yeah. So, um, yeah, tell us a little about your connection to Norwich. Is it, is it, have you been a Norfolk person through and through? Are you from another part of the country? And if you are from the other part of the country, what kind of part of, how has that formed your identity? Mm. No, I am Norfolk through and through, been here all my life, other than the three years that I um, was doing my undergrad degree, um, at, uh, that was at Warwick. So other than those three years living living over there, I've been Norwich all my life. <laughs> so um, were you definitely a Norfolk lad then when you went to Warwick? Did, was it like obvious to everyone else and did you bring a bit of Norfolk <laughs> with you? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's funny, it's one of them places that actually you speak to some... You, Obviously, I, you know it because we live here, but you speak mm. to lots, uh, lots of people and you say, yeah, I'm from Norwich and you just get, oh... Where's that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's true. It's funny. Um, stuck out here in the in the middle of East Anglia, but <laughs> so so what? So what? Yeah, I mean, when you were having these like little bit of banter with yeah. your uni mates, like what was you what was you trying to tell them about this part of the world? Then, <laughs> like first of all, trying to describe where it is. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Describe where it is. Describe how difficult it is to get in and out of. <laughs> yeah. And, uh... <laughs> And all of the wonderful things that we have around here, all the countryside yeah. and the close to the coast in a nice little city in the middle of it as well. So what's, what makes you then a Norfolk lad, do you think? What makes me a Norfolk lad? Well, I, like I say, I just like, I just, uh, just enjoy Norfolk, enjoy being here, enjoy the countryside, enjoy uh, being, out, being outside in the fresh air, like I say, out by the coast, out in the fields somewhere. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, and... Uh, 
listeners know that I've uh, once I moved up here in 2001, crikey. Um, yeah, I've pretty much been living in Norfolk. So I've actually, I'm actually more Norfolk than Essex now because I've spent more time. I've spent more than half my life living up here than I have um, down in Essex. Claimed yeah, claimed So I don't know if you call me a Norfolk lass or whatever, a Cockney Norfolk hybrid. I don't know, but um, yeah. Um, so let's talk about the kind of the work that you're doing now because, like, I must admit, Connor, when you told us that you were handing your notice to do a PhD. I was slightly jealous, I admit. <laughs> um, it's something that I've wanted to do for a while, but um, the um, I did apply for, do you know I actually applied, did I tell you I actually applied for a PhD? No, no, at one point. So yeah, this was, I mean, I, I probably knew it wasn't going to be, it was going to be very competitive. Mm. So just to give folks kind of an idea of the kind of stuff that you can do at places like the University of Stanford Environment Science. So the PhD I applied for was about seal migration patterns around Antarctica. Interesting. The Weddell seals. Um, and actually, I looked at it, and um, <coughs> it was actually on the encouragement of a friend um, from here, from UEA, a lecturer, who said, you should, you should go for this kit. And I'm like, I'm a high school teacher, as I was at the time. I haven't done a master's. I've only done an undergraduate. Um, but I taught a lot about Antarctica. I had a lot of good background knowledge, and, and I was actually encouraged to apply for it. And... Um, and um, it was just an absolutely wonderful opportunity. I thought, why not? And uh, yeah, I found out I was actually shortlisted mm. for, for the final lot. But um, yeah, I think there was somebody a bit more qualified than me, mm. to be honest. So for people who are not quite sure then, Connor, people maybe have heard of PhDs and they've heard, is there a doctor in the house? Yes, I am. <laughs> no, not that one. Yeah. You know, so... For folks who don't really know, what in the world is a PhD? So it's a postdoctorate degree, but yep. what is it? What is it? So effectively, you are spending three to four years, um, well, if you're on a sort of full-time PhD, researching a particular niche in a, in a subject area that's, well, of interest to you and of interest in some way to the wider scientific community. Um, you're doing research into something that the whole idea of a PhD is that you're contributing new knowledge to wider the wider scientific mm. uh, community. So you're researching something that that hasn't been looked at before, or maybe a new spin on something that has. Um, yeah, in order to after three three or four years produce this uh, massive book of a thesis <laughs> that. Um, yeah, that contains all of the all the research you've done. I mean, as well as that, it's an opportunity. It's it's a training. You know, it is training as well. So, you, mm. whilst you are doing this research, you're also um, making yourself into a better scientist and gaining skills that. I mean, whether you want to go into science kind of afterwards or not, um, you know, gaining skills that are going to help you um, in whatever you want to do after your PhD as well. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's. Um, I mean, I've spoken to quite a few people who are either doing PhDs or mm. having done a PhD, and I haven't actually. That's the first time I've actually asked the question, "What is a PhD?" Mm. Other than that, it's been uh, people telling me about their their PhD. And um, I mean, I'm, well, first thing we've got to tell you, people are like, "Okay, Kit, but what is Connor doing?" So, what is the title or your your working mm. title of your PhD? Then, so my working title is. Ground deformation before and after large earthquakes for seismic hazard assessment. 
Crikey, that's which, a mouthful, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's a mouthful. I can kind of break it down a bit. If you want. Right. So, folks, um, I want you to, I mean, if you press that little rewind by 30 seconds button, right? <laughs> and just listen to Connor again and try and figure out each of those individual words, right? Do that now. And then Connor can say, right, let's, let's, let's take that to pieces then, Connor. So, first of all, you had the word of defamation. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of people listening, probably especially in the current political climate, uh, defamation, they're probably thinking of like throwing someone's character on the bus. <laughs> uh, but what does that mean in terms of uh, your work? Yeah, so rather than defamation, we're deformation. So there we're we literally talking about the ground, subtle movements in the ground, effectively. So over a long period of time, um, uh, the ground will slowly kind of move as d- due to plate tectonics. Um, in the lead up to an earthquake, so that's the yeah, that's mm. that first bit. Oh, so we've we've already got a hint. So if people are probably listening and saying, "Oh, you're saying about a niche bit of research. What applications this way?" People are thinking, "Okay, earthquake prediction, perhaps." I mean, we know that that is a massive mm. uncertainty. There is, it's almost well, it isn't impossible, but it's almost impossible mm. to predict these kind of things. So. Okay, could this be a potential way into that? Okay, right, so then uh, we go on to the next bit of your title then. So uh, so where are we? Ground defamation before and after large earthquakes. Okay, this one's a bit more straightforward, but you yeah. can let us know anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So basically I'm looking at long-term patterns in the lead-up to an earthquake um, to kind of, yeah, see if you can... And I'm looking at a particular case study as well. Um, but So I'm looking at the long sort of over three or four years in the lead up to this earthquake, were there any patterns in how the ground moved and changed in the lead up? Um, and then afterwards, how did the ground then move after, um, kind of relax after mm. the earthquake had happened? Um, and that can then, using that information, that can tell you information about the crust and about the kind of dynamics of what's happening in the region um, to better understand what. Well, what has happened and therefore hopefully better understand what may or what could happen in the future. Yeah. And what really strikes me, and I'm I'm hoping people pick up this as well, is that when you describe it like that, it just goes to show how fluid, you know, what we think is solid and stable and that is is rock, that's geology. Mm. It is very fluid. It's very malleable. Um, when you look at it in this way and you look at it in this scale. So so you pop some stuff on the screen for mm. us here, Connor, and we've got, um, so just to describe it to folks, so we've got four um, four panels here and they're kind of like looking at a certain longitude and latitude. So if you if you picture a square, folks, and then along the bottom there, you've got your, your longitude, along the y-axis, you've got your latitude. So we're, we're looking at roughly, let's see if people can figure it out. So we're looking roughly at, at uh, nine, nine, late 92s, 93 degrees east and 33 degrees north. So, folks, if you can figure out where that is, a bit of a quiz for you. So, Connor's pulling up Google Earth now. So, if we go to uh, 93 degrees east and 33 degrees north, where is that going to put us, Connor? It's going to put us... Um, oops, I can get Google Earth over here. It's going to put us right about... Here and I know obviously you can't yeah. uh, see about those listening, but so people can still still um, give them a chance to figure it out. That's it. So right about here, which is in the kind of eastern region of the Tibetan plateau, so mm. um, kind of north of north of India, Nepal, Bhutan, all of that, and sort of north of the Himalayas. 
um, and to the west of kind of uh, mainland China as yeah. well. So, so folks, if you think of the Himalayan mountain range as a, as a smile, yeah, um, this is the way I used to describe it, and then, then the kind of like the, the bit of the smile which upticks to the person's left, it's kind of right up there. So to the person's left and your right as they, you'll look at the person. So it's just, just above that, the uptick of that smile there. Yeah, nice. So that's the location that you're looking at. And so we've got, we've got this, this square on the left. We've, we've got, wow, it almost looks like the pride colors almost. You've got, <laughs> but you've got, but you've got from deep red all the way up to deep blue. And it's just like a kaleidoscope of those colors, but there is a pattern. Um, so what's this one saying? So we've got, it's, it's measured in radians, but I mean, even so, I mean, I did a bit of geodynamics. I kind of figured what it is, but what are we looking at here? And what are these deep blues going into fading through yellow into deep reds represent? So this diagram here is called an interferogram. Ooh. So if you Google that, you'll find loads of kind of examples of similar things. Interferogram. Interferogram. So um, the technique that I'm using to look at these earthquakes is called INSAR. Um, and what you're effectively doing is taking two satellite images of the same location some time after one another. Um, in this case, it's about 10 days. So you take one sat you've got one satellite image, you take another one about 10 days later, and you then plug that data into some software, and it effectively compares the two and shows you the difference between those two images. Right. Um, so this first image here is the kind of raw what that spits out, which it's measured in radians because we're talking about um, radar here. So we're talking about the phase of an electromagnetic wave. Okay. So this is kind of the, this one's quite, it's harder to read, but effectively where you've got these kind of cycles of the rainbow, the closer together those cycles are, the more the ground has moved okay. in those 10 days. Um, so that's obviously quite difficult to read, which is why we can then use ones like this yep. one on the right. So we've got a second square, um, same same area, um, but this one there's far fewer colours. So this one now you've got a scale going from deep blue, through light blue, green, yellow, and it's just touching orange. And this one you've got measured in in millimetres. So we've got zero millimetres is basically light green. It goes from yellow to orange as you go up to two millimetres, and then it goes deeper and deeper blue as you go minus two millimetres, minus four millimetres, deepest blue, minus six. And right in the middle, we've got this big blue splodge. We have. We've got a big blue splodge in the middle. Kind of, if you imagine uh, watercolours, folks, watercolour painting, someone, you know, your, your kid has just dabbed a blue, and it's like spread out, and it's faded out blue as you go along. And just below that, we've got some small patches of, uh, two patches of orange and yellow. So... So what is this showing us then? So this is actually the same image. It's just been converted from this satellite um, in radians into units that we can easily kind of understand. So this one's, as you say, in millimetres. And basically this overall, you can see it's mostly kind of green, not a lot happening over most of the image here. But this blue splodge in the middle is a big patch of ground deformation due to an earthquake. Nice. Um, so you can see here it goes up to around about six millimetres um, of movement in this patch and then a couple of millimetres in this patch down here. Yeah. So is um, plus, plus is the ground risen and minus the ground fallen or um, is it not as simple as that? It's actually the 
opposite in this case uh-huh. because what you're actually looking at is if you imagine you are the satellite. Yep. If the ground has moved minus six millimeters, it that means it's moved towards you. Right. Um, so if you imagine you are the satellite looking at the ground, minus six is that's moved up towards you, um, whereas plus two is it's moved two millimeters away from you. Right. So, so that space of about. 10 square kilometers there's been a yeah. a net shift of about eight eight or nine millimeters but okay so people this this is i get the same when we come to climatology mm. and climate change people say oh 0.5 degrees mm. one degree celsius oh, it doesn't sound like anything it changes that during the day but obviously for climate average that's quite a fair bit when you look at this and you see and you say to someone that it's moved it's deformed by mm. minus six millimeters people might go no that's not that much is it it's like that much but in terms of ge- geology, have, you know, comment on that for us. Would you say that's quite a bit of a shift? Yeah, that's it. I mean, this is a re- relatively small earthquake. This is one that I've just been kind of doing some testing on. So this was only about a magnitude five earthquake. So this, as you say, over the space of about ten kilometres square, um, a couple of millimetres, and this is all. This couple of millimetres has happened in one shift. So this mm. is, you know, the earthquake occurring, um, whereas you know plates in general move millimeters over the course of years usually yep. you know over a much longer much longer kind of period of time so this shift happening in a very short space of time um yeah it is a lot and it's enough to send the shock waves through the earth that um that you feel when you have an earthquake yeah um that's i mean i, I, I love that mm. i mean it's, it's almost like um a fingerprint isn't it mm. it's a fingerprint of of movement there and um yeah i mean i mean what's when we used to teach high school you physics and me geography mm. of course the fact we used to quite use quite a lot with um, plate tectonics is uh, for kids to look at their fingernails mm. and say right can you see your fingernails grow well not over the course of a lesson but yeah. definitely over the course of a few days exactly that's the rate that the atlantic is spreading that's it so um it doesn't seem like much no. but then when you look at the look at it on a massive scale regional mm. scale global scale and you see all these formations you know the hip you've got the himalayas you've got the mid-atlantic ridge that's what accumulates over time so these are these are big movements of shift and of course a magnitude you said so this was a five was yeah it, something? i think it's 5.4 something like yeah, that. yeah that's not a small yeah. earthquake mm. i mean it you know that that's the kind of one which which can start to hit the news if it mm. hits very vulnerable places definitely right so we've got two more on the right hand side here this one it looks like i don't know the best way to describe this, folks, is is a grayscale image, but it's almost like this could be your bathroom tiles. <laughs> isn't it? So yeah. it just it's like various shades of grey, but then you've got like these kind of like darkening grey black veins mm. that run through this. So I'm not even going to. Mm, are, are they upland areas? Effectively, this is yeah. So these are the same location again. Um, this is an image before and after the wow. earthquake, um, and what this is actually showing is again kind of how much general movement there's been in between um, that time so where darker areas on the image there's been more change effectively so this is an image from before the earthquake where you can see largely there's not a lot going on you can kind of see some features whereas after the earthquake in particular there's this long kind of dark line that has formed here that, if I were to overlay that onto one of these other images, it would correspond exactly with where that deformation was. Wow. 
So what this is, is actually the surface kind of rupture of, of the fault. That's incredible. Um, that, yeah. yeah, being viewed from, um, from a satellite image. And this is around about three and a half kilometres long, I think, <laughs> if you measure that. Not small then? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, so folks, it looks like, so the first, the second image looks like the contrast has gone up, but the scale is the same. So you see there's been some been changes there. So those, those almost like black veins have got dark in them. Mm. But yeah, Connor's just pointed out like almost, almost like a hairline fracture kind of thing, which is going north to south. Yeah, kind of a slight mm. angle, but about three and a bit kilometers. Crikey. You can't see in this you first one. You can't see in the first one. It suddenly appeared after the earthquake. So that's... Yeah. 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 But that's kind of just show to give an example of yeah, the sorts of images and data that I'm working with effectively is these these images. But over, as I say, for, I'll be looking at large earthquakes and looking at this over a long period of time. Sure. So it's effectively collections of these images every 10 days for the years in the lead up to an earthquake to monitor those, those really subtle changes. Um, in the lead up that's pretty cool so um, a <clears throat> couple of questions for you then mm. so people listening to this because when I whenever I when I was growing up and especially if there's any young people listening or teachers listening working with young people whenever you hear like PhD all that kind of stuff you think of like the absolute echelon top of the top the brainiest boffing people in the world right because my first my first um, experience of knowing what the word PhD was, was that of my, my aunt, my aunt Susan, mm. who, um, who went to Japan to do her PhD and she was looking at cancer T cells and I actually managed to flick through her thesis mm. when she had finished it. I was very young at this time, but, you know, it was like a different language to me. Mm. And so I had that imprint on me that a PhD was only for, you know, people who were far more clever and intelligent than I thought I was. Mm. So... When you applied for this PhD, was it a case of, yeah, you're already an expert in this, that you know what you're doing, you know what you're looking for, you've got that background knowledge, or is it a case of you have to grind a bit, you've got to learn a bit, it, you know, you don't have to be ultra clever in this because it is something that you pick up on the time. So so go back into your outreach mode, yeah? Yeah. When we're talking, imagine we're mm. talking to kids about trying to encourage them into yeah. going towards this stuff. What would you say to these kids who think, oh, I'm I not mean, so clever enough to do this kind of stuff? What? It might be useful to do is kind of if I give you a quick my kind of how I got here. Yeah, might be useful brilliant. At this point. Yes, yeah, great idea. Because I definitely didn't take the traditional route into doing a PhD. You know, where you go to uni, you do your undergrad, you do well in that, you do a master's, you do well in that, and then you go on to a PhD. That wasn't my route at all. Hmm. Um, so I, as we've mentioned, I was a physics teacher earlier. Um, or previously, and that was I did physics as my undergrad degree. Um, so I didn't have any background in geography or anything like that. So this has all come later. Um, but so I did my undergrad in physics, did okay in that, but it wasn't really kind of um, what I felt driven that I wanted to carry on with and you know into masters and that sort of thing. So that was when I gave teaching a go, taught physics for three years, four years if you include the training year. Um, but that was when I kind of started thinking about going back into study. But mm. I knew that it wasn't just physics that I wanted to do. Um, so I then applied. Um, so I'd been teaching, as I say, I'd been out of, out of study for four years at this point. Um, I then applied to do a master's, and that was in geophysical hazards. Mm -hmm. So it's something you know, related to the physics that I'd been doing, but had this um, 
this kind of twist on is looking at something a little bit more uh, you know tangible in the real world so it's looking at different hazards earthquakes volcanoes weather um, all sorts so that was what I then did I finished my master's um, and I then was thinking about applying for PhDs um, and I applied for a couple and wasn't successful first time round. applied for another couple got a little bit further I got sort of shortlisted but didn't end up getting funded for them mm-hmm. um, and that was actually when so that was then the year that I started the outreach work um, and following that then reapplied for a third so this is three years of applications that I've yeah. had to that I've had to do before actually getting here um, and that's you know and all of this stuff that you know that we've been talking about that I've been showing you yeah no I didn't know anything about well not nothing but you know I all the kind of techniques and methods mm. and specifics of the stuff that I'm looking at. No, didn't didn't have a clue. Yes, I had a back a general background in in earthquakes and a background in the physics and putting that background knowledge together into something that um, it's yeah using the skills and other knowledge and wider kind of things that you've got that um, you can then apply to the these more specific problems of that you might have in a PhD. So it's not about being you know it's not about as you say already being an expert in all of this mm. stuff before you start it's as much a training process as it is um as it is anything else yeah um, so yeah no one's expecting you to to be an expert in this stuff it's just about having the kind of background knowledge and background skills that you can then apply to this phd and that's what people are looking for when you're applying well, that's it um, yeah yeah well, that makes more that and that and that story <clears throat> makes total sense. Why I was encouraged to impl- to mm. apply for that PhD myself because they thought they needed a bit of a, an, an outside outside the mm. box way of approaching it. Um, but yeah, so so I mean, so there you go, folks. It's it's a case of you know why not? And I think what the, the thing mm. that really stretches out to me there, Connor, is the persistence. Mm. You know, like you didn't give up. You, you know, this is it took years for you to get to this point to do this, and mm. also, of course. PhDs can be so, as you said already, can be so niche and so specific that not only are you looking to do a PhD in general, you're looking to do one that could be fulfilling and motivating for three, potentially four years. Exactly. And we know that, I mean, we both know for our work um, as physics and geography teachers and just what we do, that this kind of work can have well, most PhDs, if not all PhDs, can have real-world, real-life applications, you know. And for all we know, years down the line, the work that you're doing here, you might stumble upon something which actually can lead to saving lives in in, in tectonically active areas. So I must... Do you, do, you, do you kind of, like, try and remember that when you're sitting here in the 9 to 5 grind? <laughs> yeah, definitely. You've got to kind of think about the wiser... Yeah, the wider and why you're doing it as well is you know not necessarily always about the outcome of the mm. you know the implications of your research. So obviously, because like you say, there is a chance that what you're doing will have that you know real big impact. But most of the stuff, the impacts are going to be small, but they're still there. Yeah, and um, you know it's everything's built up kind of in in increments. But yeah, it's about you've got to remember why you're doing it, why you're here, um, and that. The fact that you get there as well means that, um, as I say, it's a competitive process and just 
being able to get onto a course and being able to be sat here is is um, mm. kind of a privilege in itself. Um, and yeah, so like you say, when you're sat there <laughs> in the grind, kind of stuck into some data or into some reading or whatever yeah. it might be, you've definitely got to think about yeah why you're actually doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like when I was doing my dissertation for my, my undergraduate degree about North Sea storms. I absolutely love, loved it. You know, I tried to merge human and physical aspects, so risk risk perception on the North Sea coast. And but there were some aspects of it where I just I was struggling to get my head around, mm. and it was so difficult. And and uh, like using this new spectral analysis on this new data set. So that's the other thing as well. It's like I was I was given a brand new data set that the yeah. University of Stanley had compiled, and no one had touched it mm. at all. No one had processed it whatsoever. And they said, "Kit, here's here, here's an opportunity for you." You're going to be the first person to actually make some use of this mm. data set. We've got plans for it, but we want to see what you're going to do with yeah, it. Yeah. And, um, and that was exciting. So, yeah, I mean, it was a dissertation. It was just to show that I can do a research project and stuff like that and have some independence. But but also, you know, I broke I broke the ground on that data set, which then was used for something else, which, which you know, and that's what it's all about. It's all the components as well. I mean, okay. you, you know, the methodology that you use, you, you, when you come to appraise your methodology, then the next research is going to pick up and, and refine that and improve upon that or say well that part of this you know in a in, what you say interference gram or mm. is is not as applicable as we thought it would be but this part of it was quite useful and that's how science evolves and moves mm. forward so um thanks for showing that to us uh Connor. that's absolutely brilliant um before we go for a little wander around the mm-hmm. campus and we're going to go and we're going to end the podcast chat with a brew rather than start it as usually i just want you to spill the beans a little bit right so okay. um on the shelves around here <laughs> we've got dozens yeah. of origami now i'm going to pitch picture this folks right connor and i worked um what we had to do for the university is work for outreach and things we had to work something called a clearing a clearing shift right um and that is laughing and um the whole so clearing is when um people who get their A-level results, whatever, they ring up and they say, do you still have courses for this or another? Do I my, do my qualifications allow me in? Because they may have not got their first choice or they may have just decided at the last minute that they do want to go to university, whatever. But there can be a few minutes, a few, a little bit of time before a call comes in or, or a live chat comes, <laughs> isn't it? So you took to Samari Kami these dinosaurs and cranes and stuff yeah. like that. And you and you ended up with a nice little posse of dinosaurs <laughs> on the table in your clearing table. But since then, Connor, you've now got to have a lot more. I do. So um, tell us a bit about this yeah. origami skill that you've got then. Well, I think, like I say, the, the, that kind of kicked it off a little bit, the dinosaurs at clearing, when, like I say, you've got a bit of downtime waiting for that call to come in. So <laughs> what do you do? Well, yeah, let's fold some paper. Why not? Um, that could be fun. And it's a bit addictive once you start. Um, and then, um, yeah, I think when I, I don't know how it came up in conversation at some point, um, just talking about origami with some of my other sort of PhD, um, friends as well. And so we all sat down one, one, uh, I think it was around Christmas time. Uh, we all just sat down one afternoon and just had a bit of an origami session. And, <laughs> an uh, origami hackathon. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And, you know, made a few. So the, you mentioned the shelf that's got about... 20 or 30 probably dinosaurs mainly on there was that a unicorn um, I can see that the the green so I mentioned we made them around Christmas time that's a T-Rex wearing a Christmas hat (laughs) (laughs) I love Um, it 
and uh, yeah, so that tiny one. So is. this tiny one, this one isn't mine. So I've, this one of my friends, um, Alice, is really good at making stegosauruses. So there are, if you look over there, about half of the ones over there are stegosauruses. That's incredible. And the really small ones are very impressive. So this, um, yeah, this folks. So if I lay it on my, so this basically just goes down. Yeah, so two joints of a finger. So from the finger now, just down to the middle, the middle joint of my finger. That is tough. My goodness, that's, that's not even bigger than my fingernail. <laughs> okay, this is about. All right, yeah, about twice, the, just about, just yeah. under twice the length of my my biggest fingernail. And that, and you say that's not even the smallest one. No, sorry, this one is. Oh, that think, is the yeah, smallest the one. one you had earlier. Right. Wasn't, yeah, no, but the, I mean, these ones are beyond my abilities. Come on, you've got to catch up. <laughs> just, just wait, here. Uh, this reminds me of my friend, uh, my my close friend Carrie, who 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 uh, can do very small origami, and I've still got the little origami bunny that she gave me oh, in two thousand and two. Still very nice. So it's lovely. <laughs> right, enough of that nonsense. Should we go take a walk? Let's have a wander. Let's go for it. Hi folks, a chance for you to recharge your brew, but also a polite prod to remind you that it's so easy to support this podcast. Simply liking, sharing, rating and reviewing means that it will get on more people's radar. Also, there are a few links down in the description which may be of mutual benefit. Please do check them out. So Connor and I are going for a bit of a wonder of a place we know very, very well, so... Um do excuse the little wind blast, folks. Uh, I'll try and get that out post-edit, we'll see. <laughs> so we've got this really strange setup here at the University Stang, haven't we, where we've got a concrete walkway, and, uh, and uh, what really does confuse people is the, is the flooring system, because <laughs> uh, walkway level is floor zero, and if you go down that, we go zero, one, zero, two, and then up it, you go one, two. Yeah. So, and uh, yeah, so we've got the beautiful ziggurats behind us. So you've got your keep cup, then? Of course. Yeah. Of course. Right, after you, you first. Uh, uh, a flat white. Keeping it simple. That's your drink of choice. <laughs> Quite tempt, so yeah. So this is uh, so we're in a place called Ziggy's, one of the many places you can grab a drink or something to eat here at on campus. Oh, chocolate! Mm. I quite fancy a caramel shortbread, but I don't know. I technically, should be on a diet. <laughs> Gluten-free banana loaf. Yeah. Hi there. Can I have a uh, a chai latte, please? And spiced, please. Yep, and could I also have a, a gluten-free banana loaf? Thank you. So what they do do very nicely here is the um, jacket potatoes are pretty, pretty, yeah. pretty nice here. I like, I like the jacket potatoes. They're only like two, like five, that's one, it, fifty or two good. That's it. Yeah, they're good values to be fair. Yeah. So we've had a nice little walk around camp there's a lot of building work going on at the moment because um, yeah. because the Lasden Wall which is a listed graded building like it was built in the 50s is uh, in a bit of a state of disrepair yeah so there's scaffolding <laughs> all over bit. the place <laughs> at the moment yeah but um, yeah I was, I was just really thinking back to uh, our time you know your time as an outreach officer 
jobs that I still do. I mean, we, um, yeah, I mean, you, you kind of used it as a stopgap kind of way, as you know, use your teaching thing. But um, looking around a place like this, and I mean, I, I obviously got my own ideas, but you know, trying to get as many young people aspiring to come to places like this, I mean, it's pretty important. I, I feel you know, it's um, there's so many underrepresented groups don't come to university or don't think university's for them or any kind of higher education apprenticeships whatever so yeah so you, you were with us what for every year year and a half yeah no it's only a year actually oh wow yeah so it feels like feels like longer though I mean it did go go by quickly in the end doesn't it but uh, yeah. yeah no only for a year but yeah you're exactly right so, such an important an important role um, yeah trying to get those underrepresented groups um yeah, sort of more. Well, like I say, as much as anything is to know that they can come to go to higher education, isn't it? And kind of just actually let them know what their options are. Um, and it's then their choice whether they want to actually go through with it or not. But yeah. just just knowing that uh, you know the university is for people like them, um, the, for everybody is yeah just so important. It's, um, well, and, and our role, because we were externally funded, we, um, we, we had to be impartial. So even though we worked under the UEA umbrella, we were trying to encourage to people to look at, young people to look at all forms of further and higher education. So, and not just be biased towards the UEA. I mean, we, we, can, we can give it as an option for as a local university for kids who can't or don't want to leave home. Um, but do you have any, any standout moments or memories from... Uh, it doesn't have to be with the young people. We can even be with uh, your <laughs> colleagues, but going bowling or something—I don't know. Yeah, but yeah bowling. Do you have any fond memories? Yeah, I mean, lots. I don't, you know, um, it's meant. I don't know necessarily about sort of specific ones that stand out as such, but just the, um, in particular, doing the sort of, lots of the more targeted kind of one-to-one work and small groups work yeah. is always I always found really kind of rewarding just being able to actually sit and talk with the young people and actually you know figure out what it is that they're actually interested in and you know what they yeah what they want to do and what they actually see themselves doing in the future and it's those kind of and being able to just help them with those with those decisions and let them know what's out there and you know whether that's helping them with doing the kind of personal statement work and that kind of thing, or just those the kind of small chats that you might have either in specific sessions or just after you've given a talk or something. Those little chats about oh, I didn't know that you could do this. Or um, I think that's the yeah, they're the bits that kind of really um, yeah, you really kind of stick out the most. I think yeah, those, that's it. Isn't it? It's all about it's all about guiding, really. I mean, that's it. not trying to push an agenda or anything like that, but saying to the students, you know, um, throughout our work, we we show them all the options. Exactly. You know, apprenticeships, higher education, further education, and then they would, something would click with them, and then off they go. So yeah, my um, I think my fond memory is so far has been a, a young year thirteen. Well, a young year thirteen lad. They would they would think they're young anymore, <laughs> but you know, 17, yeah. 17 18. But he. Um, he had no clue what he wanted to do. He was a bit directionless. He was very stressed and anxious about what he was going to do afterwards. So we had a look at like apprenticeships and kind of things that he might want to be interested in and work through his confidence to apply for things, you know, call people up, ask questions, go to open days and stuff like that. And um, 
and after about three attempts he actually ended up getting a place on a degree apprenticeship that's great going from yeah. that, that directionless not knowing what he wanted to do to a degree apprenticeship so I think that was you know we, a singular win yeah. is what makes it all worthwhile really isn't it when you so and now he's going to go on and do um, amazing things and get a degree out of it as well yeah, so amazing so that's incredible mm-hmm. right Connor yeah. challenge for you right oh here we go yeah so this is the last thing we're going to do um <laughs> Called we are all geographers, and uh, we li- this is how we link all guests together. Right now, my last uh, chat was with uh, Katie Nicolau, who's a, um, a broadcast meteorologist mm-hmm. and science communicator in um, in Michigan, in the United States. Okay. Um, Pete, I, I don't know if people managed to get through that chat because we were nuts. Right. We were like two geeks, a sci-fi nerd as well, yeah. and weather nerds. So we we we. we well, you know what I was saying about how my kids go absolutely wacko. Well, yeah, yeah. we were like worse than my kids. <laughs> um, but when, once once we calmed down and had our fun, uh, and I asked Katie what uh, word she would like you to talk to, right. talk about for 30 seconds, okay. so you've got a max of 30 seconds, is the word consequential. Consequential, right. So, it could, be, it could be in the frame of what you're doing, it could be based on what we chat about, it could be just random stuff about the word consequential it's completely up to you Excellent. but the only the only rule is is that you've got 30 seconds 30 seconds so uh, you've got, we got our little timer on the dictaphone okay so when you start yeah I'll tell you what we'll see if you can get, go, get going at, at we'll 30 going okay. okay so the word consequential okay. Connor. well I think actually so relating it going from what I'm looking at in terms of earthquakes is, why don't we we'll spin back to that as this is yeah. the end um, so I'm as I say, going to be looking at the long-term kind of stress buildups on on faults, kind of over over a long period of time before these big earthquakes happen. Um, and I think I'll talk about why earthquakes are so difficult. We talk about how difficult or almost impossible they are to actually predict. You know, we give forecasts of what might happen, but yeah. you can't actually predict that there is going to be an earthquake next week. We would say because there's just such a huge number of uh, Factors that go into that that go into where, when and where an earthquake happens, and it's a consequent consequential. <laughs> it's a consequence of all of these different, um, you know, the different strains building up from different plates moving, earthquakes happening in other in other locations that you know release pressure on the um, on the crust, and depending on where you are in the world and what the composition of the crust is, and um, I'm going to All stop you. Okay. You went, okay. You went a bit over 30 seconds, but I yeah, thought I'd give you a bit of extra time. Yeah. <laughs> this is what you were saying was interesting. Mm. Oh, well done. So, um, right. But the good news is, is that now you get to come up with a word for someone else right. then. So it could be anything you like. Okay. Um, and we're going to have our next guest have a go at it for 30 seconds. Excellent. Um, Roughly. Well, so what? I'm looking at a little QR code scanner thing here in front of me, and it's got the word exploring on it. So I think that would be exploring. nice. Exploring. Okay, folks, so um, tune in next time for my next guest who's going to have a go over the word exploring for 30 seconds. <laughs> right, this is fantastic. So, um, Connor, last thing, that, last thing then is to say, um, is there anybody you want to say uh, hi to? Hi, well, whoever's listening. Whoever's <laughs> listening. Jenny, Jenny Bark, you might yeah. be listening. She was a guest on, the, on this podcast a few yeah. months back. Um, all that team, yeah. that team of yeah. us who That's went down it. the Royal Society in London exactly, and did the volcano yeah. thing. Yeah. Great, great week that was. Yeah. 
Gab Seyartem. And um, if people want to uh, follow what you do, I mean, I know you've got a Twitter account, or God knows what they're calling it nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so, where can people find you if they yeah, want to follow you? Or I mean, what you um, like? Rutland Connor, um, R U T L A N D C O N O R on Twitter. Yeah, one N. Um, yeah, that's important. One N. Um, yeah, so you find me there. Um, I'm not overly active, but you know, I do the, uh, do post the odd thing every now and then. So yeah, give me a little follow and uh, see what I'm up to. Um, yeah, that's about Brilliant. it. I think for that. Well, well, thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for bearing with this. I know when I asked you to do this, you're like, oh my god, I like it, just because I know you. Yeah. That's fine. But no, it's just also a lovely, lovely excuse just to catch a bit of time with you and catch yeah. up over a bit of lunch and a bit of uh, flat white latte. Yeah, that's and, it. Uh, hey, good to catch up and have a little chat. Yeah, I'm going to tuck into my gluten-free banana cake. <laughs> thanks, Connor. Cheers, kid. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favorite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep geogging.